Hey, my name is Amanda. I want to thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message inspires you, builds your faith, and helps you find your next step toward Jesus. Enjoy the message. Everybody, Merry Christmas. It is good to see you. Good to see you survive the deep freeze of 2022. Yeah, been a cold couple of days indeed. Well, a couple of weeks ago, Major League Baseball finished its winter meetings, and the Cardinals, for the first time in what, 20 years, went shopping for a catcher and brought home a good one. Uh, Wilson Contreras, you know, uh, I could probably the best hitting catcher in baseball right now, delivered him from darkness from Chicago Cubs, transferred him to Kingdom of Light, St. Louis Cardinals, and uh, that's all good. You know, but uh, what, what are you thinking if you're a Cardinals fan? What are you thinking about next year? Hopeful? Yeah, yeah, some, you know. Actually, I, I kind of was hoping for a shortstop, too, and uh, maybe even a better starting pitcher, like somebody can really strike him out, you know. So I kinda, I'm kind of a little disappointed, so I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not overly optimistic about next year, so I'm kind of hanging in the balance about that. And that's how it is, right? When it comes to future hope, we base it on present actions, what's going on. And uh, uh, what, we're, what is happening now can give us hope for the future. Take it in anything. Um, we have hope. Everybody here, I'm going to talk about hope today. Talking about hope on this Christmas Eve. Every one of you has come in here with some kind of hope. Based upon present actions or what's going on, you're hoping for something better in the future. It's been said that a human being can live weeks without food, days without water, but only minutes without hope. Everybody comes in with hope. The question is, what are we putting our hopes in? Sometimes we, uh, sports fans can put, you know, put it in that, and we get really disappointed by how things don't turn out well, you know, and most of the time goes well for Cardinals fans, but not all the times. So at least I'm not a Cubs fan, you know, um, then it would really be bad. Uh, but maybe, maybe you have, your hope is in um, the economy and that it's going to get better, or maybe the weather that it's going to get better, or something simple like that, or, or maybe your hope is in your retirement retirement plans. If you haven't checked for a while, don't look right now. Um, maybe, maybe your hope is um, in a, a political party, a government, maybe a person, maybe your spouse. I mean, we have all kinds of things we put our hopes in, and the reality is we get disappointed because a few of those things can live up to the expectations that we have, and we all have hope. The question is, do we have hope in something that really will not let us down? And the, the message of uh, these writers of Scripture is that we do. You want to talk about a set of circumstances you can be hopeful about. Forget Major League Baseball's winter meetings and what the Cardinals did. Let's talk about the most remarkable life in human history whose unique birth we celebrate today, whose life was unlike any life ever, ever lived, and whose death, the day he died, was unlike any day in human history, and that he defeated death. Oh, yeah, that. And, and the writers of Scripture and, and, and 
Literally hundreds of millions of Christians who've gone before us have said, if your life is built on those realities, nothing can dash your hopes. Nothing will disappoint you. Christ will not disappoint you. So what I want to do is I want to talk about a hope um, that you can build your life on, bank your life on. Now, first, we've got to clean up the word hope because um, in English today, in modern American, it's come to mean something a little weaker than what was originally meant by the word hope. Today, hope means something more like wishful thinking or positivity. You know, I hope the weather will get better than it has been the last couple days. Um, I have had hopes for years. I tell you, I've had hopes for years that the people of southeast Missouri would rise up and learn how to use the roundabout down here correctly. But my hopes keep getting dashed. Um, that's just wishful thinking. Um, hope, in a biblical sense, is much more certain than that. In fact, it's a certainty. It's an anchor. One, one writer said hope can be defined as the expectation of coming good based on the person and the promises of God. And that is solid. That will last and that will not disappoint you. It's the expectation of a coming good. So what I want you to hear on this Christmas Eve is that the future is coming. And it's good. It's good. And if you know me, that's a lot because, see, I, I'm kind of one of those glasses half empty kind of people. That's naturally by nature. That's what I am. I, I, can find, I can find the negative in just about anything. But for me to stand up here and say that, only Jesus can do that. Future's coming, and it's good. So I want to spend a few minutes tonight in um, maybe the greatest chapter of the greatest letter ever written. Written by Paul to the church in Rome. It's called Romans. And um, Paul was this enemy of the church. He was enemy of Jesus. He, he was called Saul of Tarsus. That was his given name. And he's persecuting the church. And one day Jesus meets him in glory on the road and turns his life around. And he becomes a follower of Jesus, becomes this one who's sent to the whole Roman world to preach Jesus. And he winds up writing half the New Testament. And he wrote this letter called Romans. And it gets to the middle of the book, kind of two-thirds in. And there is this majestic letter. you got to read it. Chapter 8 of Romans, it just doesn't get any grander. There's no grander vision. There's no greater view from any mountaintop greater than this. It begins, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it just builds and gets better as it goes along. I'm going to be picking up halfway through uh, this chapter. And um, Paul says some amazing things here. But first, in verse 19, he says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The future's coming, and it's good. And creation can't wait. So you see, he, he personifies, we, he calls creation, we might call it today nature, all right? And he says, nature or creation can't wait. It is so excited about it. In fact, the word there, eager expectation, means raised head. It's like your head is raised, 
You're, you're leaning, you're on your tiptoes, you're leaning forward, and you're looking for something to come over the horizon. That's kind of the image here that creation, he personifies the earth that God has created, is looking. And what's it looking for? It says, for the children of God to be revealed. That's you and me. That's God's people. What's that, what's that talking about? Well, it kind of goes back to the original, the creation story and how God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates this wonderful planet. He puts human beings on it. He puts us in charge. And he says, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and everything that creeps on the ground. Uh, take charge. Take authority over it all and build it up and tame it and make it beautiful. Make it glorious. Only problem is that human beings, the main actor, the ones made in the image of God, the image bearers who are put on earth to manage this world of ours, rebel against the creator. We rebel against the creator, and we even do things like we worship the creation that God made for us to rule over. And the whole thing falls apart because we're supposed to be the main actors in this whole story. God created us to be the main actors. If you watch a movie... And the leading character is bad. If it's a bad actor, the whole movie's bad, right? You, you can work around maybe a sub, you know, somebody who has a smaller part in the movie. But, but if, the, if the leading character is bad, the whole thing, we're the leading character in this great drama. And um, we rebel against the one who put us in charge. But he says, creation is waiting. Why? Because the creator has come into the world, walked among us, lived died and rose again to redeem those fallen rebellious creatures. I was waiting for us to come back. If you, if you know anything about the children's series of books, the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis, great, great series. I read these to my kids twice when they were little and highly recommend that parents. Got, got to read these books to your kids. Oh my gosh, they're so good. And in Narnia, if you know the story, are these simple, ordinary children from England who go through a wardrobe and they enter a magical land called Narnia. And in Narnia, animals talk and uh, uh, unusual things happen. But when they get there, they discover that it's always winter and never Christmas. Now, that would be bad, wouldn't it? Um, but they discover it because it's under the spell of this, this white witch. And she's evil. And she's cast this spell so that it's always winter and never Christmas. And then one day, a mighty lion by the name of Aslan shows up, and his breath begins to melt the, 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 the snow and the ice. And then Aslan, this heroic creature, this majestic lion, is killed by the white witch. But they can't keep him dead. He rises again. And Aslan's roar wakes up the kingdom. And, and, and the children then... Uh, as followers of Aslan are made kings and queens in Narnia. And it said, once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen in Narnia. See, what Lewis is doing in that story is telling our story. That we were made to be royalty, ruling over all that God created. Um, but we messed up. But God is in the process of redeeming the whole thing. Going on in, in verse 20, he says... Um, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. He says, creation, the earth, has been subjected to frustration. That word is also, can also be translated futility, our meaninglessness. 
Why? Because it's trapped in an unending cycle of birth and death. Think about our seasons. Spring is a time of birth and flowering and life. And it's followed by summer, which is growth. And then fall, which is maturity. And then winter, which is death. It's spring. It's summer. It's fall. It's death. It's winter. And, and he says creation has been subjected to this decay. It was never meant to know this cycle But what he says next is glorious. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Again, he personifies nature and he says, nature's groaning. And every time I read that verse, I I think of horrific earthquakes. Sometimes an earthquake that triggers a tsunami and tens of thousands of people die. Or maybe it's 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 a hurricane Never been in a hurricane, you know. We've all maybe dodged a tornado or two. I went to uh, Florida not long after Hurricane Ian landed ashore, and you see the devastation, and it's just it's it's mind blowing. And 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 so when Paul says that the creation is groaning, I kind of picture all of these just horrific things in nature. But then in the midst of that, he throws in this hopeful image. What kind of pain? Labor pains. If there's any kind of pain that is beautiful and ends in glory, it's labor pains. Now, no women would say easy for you to say, Ron. Um, But really, a labor pain is a hopeful pain because it means a child is coming. Joy is coming. Christmas is about the birth of a child, and so we know that's hopeful, that's promising, that's, that's glorious. And he says creation is, is, is having these pains. But every time you see a horrific thing in nature, every time you see a, uh, learn a read of a hurricane or a, a, a tsunami or a volcano we're erupting, know that a new world is being birthed. You see, when God set out to redeem this mess that we made, He sent Jesus, he came in the person of Jesus, not just to live this life and die for us so that we may be forgiven our sins. That's that's true. It's all true. But it's bigger than that. God intends to set everything right. Everything broken in this world, God intends to set right. And the first advent brought the Messiah to the earth. The second advent, the return of Jesus, will set everything right. And this is our hope. And that's why you see this, this hope embedded in Christmas songs. You know, it's not just about the birth. It's about this big hope that the birth creates for us. Joy to the world. We, we uh, sang that earlier. You know, that's really not even a Christmas song. don't mean to spoil it for you, but it's not. It was written by Isaac Watts, one of my relatives, so I know, okay? <laughs> I don't know if I'm related. I like to think I am. Um, but, yeah, he writes, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Um, it talks about heaven and nature singing. And then, then this, this uh, hopeful line, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What's that thorns about? Well, we know that when, that when we sin, when we rebelled against the creator, the, the curse was placed upon the earth, thorns and thistles that will yield for you by the sweat of your brow, you will work the land. 
but he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And the curse will be no more. And um, the greatest, and I should say the worst aspect of the curse is death. That was written into the equation after we sinned and rebelled. Death. This cycle of death that nature experiences, spring, summer, fall, winter, is the same thing that we experience. That's why Paul goes on to say this. He says, not only so about creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Now, I should what Paul put, he packed so much in there. Uh, our adoption. When you become a follower of Jesus, you are adopted into the family of God. You become a son or a daughter of God. So right now, here, in this moment, you are royalty. If you know Jesus, you are his son, you're his daughter. But, but there's more than that. He says, we groan. Just like creation groans. Because our redemption is not complete. He says, the, 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 um, the redemption of our bodies. When Jesus defeated death, the tomb was empty. There was nothing left. His body was raised. And um, just like creation groans, and we see it sometimes maybe through natural disasters, our bodies groan, we age. The same cycle that nature is subjected to, we are. A human being is born grows, matures, and then what? Dies. We see this in the genealogies. This, this truth is introduced in all the genealogies. If you are a student of the Bible, if you read the Bible, you know that's the part of the Bible you always skip over, right? Because you get to all of these proper names and, and it just kind of gets repetitive like over and again, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. But here in, in first, first genealogy is Genesis 5, and uh, let's kind of skim through it a little bit here. It starts with Adam, our, our first, uh, the first human being. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years and he died. You get the picture? He was born. He had, he had some kids. And he died. And then his son had, had some kids and then died. We groan because we know that decay and decline and death is coming. And see, creation can't wait, and our bodies too. That God is intending to bring what? The resurrection of every human being who puts their faith in Jesus into, with a new body. When you get to the end of the story, what? You have the new heaven and new earth. God says, I make all things new. And there'll be no more mourning, crying or pain. There'll be no more disease or decay or death. I'll tell you, friends, the future is coming, and it's good. 
I mean, it's unexplainably good. It's unbelievably good. We can't even understand how good it is. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, nor has it even entered the heart of man the things God has prepared for those who love him. It's so good. So we have hope. Now, at, at one level, if I just stop here, it may seem a bit impractical. Our pie in the sky. Oh, that's great. In the future, God's going to create a new heaven and earth. God's going to make all things new. He's going to give me a resurrected body. That's all great. But what about right now, Ron? How do I live with hope right now? Well, I'm glad yes. <laughs> because right here, Paul starts this whole passage we've been looking at with these words. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What are you suffering right now? Past couple months, we've done some hard funerals around here. Tragic funerals. Heartbreaking. Uh, We've walked with some people who've been given just um, devastating diagnoses by their doctors. We've seen people lose jobs, suffer in so many ways. Maybe your suffering is a little different, but it's real. Maybe you've got a rift in your family and you're dreading the gathering tonight or tomorrow because you know that's really real. Maybe you have some financial struggles and you don't know how you're going to pay the bills next year. I don't know how you're suffering, but we all experience suffering. In fact, sometimes our suffering can be the very thing that keeps us from faith in God. If you believe the polling, if you believe the research, it's the number one thing that keeps people from coming to faith in Jesus, this reality of human suffering. How can you believe in a good God in a world filled with evil and suffering? That's why we're going to do this series next month because we come around to this topic every three or four years because we know that it is a stumbling block for so many people. But Paul wants us to know right here that our present sufferings cannot compare to the glory that is coming that one day, because of God's mighty acts in Jesus and the full redemption of this world and of our bodies, everything that we've experienced in this life will seem just like a momentary dream, will seem like a bad thing that happened in light of the joy and the glory that God will bring. And so that means right now, whatever you're going through, whatever you're experiencing, whatever kind of hardship, whatever kind of setback, whatever kind of suffering in yourself or you're watching others, loved ones suffer, I want you to know you can have hope. A future, the future is coming and it's good. And you can, you can put your trust in that even when everything around you seems to contradict that. You may know the name Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. He's considered uh, one of the greatest uh, poets uh, ever uh, born in America. He lived in the 1800s. And in 1860, he suffered one of the most tragic, one of the most great, one of the uh, most horrific tragedies a a human being could experience. His his wife, his beloved wife, um, at Christmas was lighting candles And her dress caught fire, and she burned to death. And Longfellow tried to save her. He he tried wrapping himself around her towels, and he burned. His face got so burned that it was forever disfigured. And from from that point on, he always wore a beard. And he was heartbroken. He was left with six children to raise by himself. 
A year after this, in 1861, he writes in his journal how inexpressively sad are all holidays. Some of you here know what he's talking about, don't you? You've lost someone, and tomorrow there'll be one less uh, setting at the table. Two years later, in 1862, he talked about the sadness again. He says, a Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. In 1863, as the Civil War was at its darkest moment, his son was wounded, seriously wounded. He didn't die, but he required constant attention, and Longfellow nursed his son back to health, and that's how he spent the Christmas of 1863. And in 1864, he's reflecting on all of the sadness that Christmas has brought him in years past, and he sits down to write a poem. It went like this, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He's literally hearing church bells ringing in the distance. He says, till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth. On earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And if you know the carol, it ends with these words. Then peal the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. In his own despair, in his own heartbreak, the bells ringing in the background reminded him of the hope we have in Christ. And though he suffered, and though he faced hardship, it was that hope that gave him confidence and left us a beautiful song and poem. I don't know where you're at or what you've put your hope in, But if you put your hope in Christ, you can have a future with hope, no matter what. Your hope, your future, it's good. It's coming, and it's good. And that's the message of Christmas. Let's pray. So, Father, we we thank you. That in the midst of life's sufferings, there is a truth that gives us hope. No matter how dark the days, no matter how severe the circumstances, we can have hope. I pray for those right now among us who are struggling, who are trying to find peace on earth, goodwill to men. And maybe like Longfellow 150 years ago, they're losing hope. God, would you let them hear the gospel 
anew and afresh. Let them hear that the future is coming and it's good. We thank you, Jesus, that Christmas is about many things, but it's about hope. A sure and certain expectation of coming good based upon your nature and your promises. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name. If you enjoyed today's message, make sure to subscribe to this channel. Feel free to share this with others that God has put on your heart. To learn more about LaCroix Church or to find your next steps, head to lacroixchurch.org. Thanks again for checking us out, and we hope to see you soon. Bye.